Well, a few years ago, I was a college student majoring in French horn performance. And uh, one year, my professor decided that all of us, our whole studio, all of his students should take a trip together to the International Horn Symposium. Uh, perhaps you didn't know, there's an International Horn Society for French horn players, and every year they gather together and have the International Horn Symposium, which that year was in Beijing. And uh, so we, we raised some money and pooled some resources, and uh, that summer we all headed over to Beijing together. Uh, we were on the China Eastern flight from Los Angeles to Beijing for 13 hours. It was a miserable 13 hours. Um, and having 13 hours to mill around on the airplane, we discovered that we were not the only French horn players on the airplane. That everyone's headed to Beijing, and there's only so many ways to get there. There's other professors, there's students, there's orchestra musicians, all kind of milling around the airplane, and among them all was one particularly famous horn player uh, who was so skilled that he was actually not an orchestra musician. He was a professional soloist. So his full-time life job is not to play in an orchestra, but to travel from city to city to place to place performing solos in front of the orchestra. And um, he felt, rightly, actually, as I tell you as a horn player, there's something accurate about this, that for him to go 13 hours without practicing was going to kind of dull the edge of his skill a little bit. Um, His muscles would atrophy a little bit. And uh, as a finely tuned performer, he was not going to let that happen. And so mid-flight, he opened up his case, assembled his horn, proceeded to the galley at the back of the airplane, and as quietly as he could, for 30 to 40 minutes, ran through his entire warm-up routine. Uh, As you can probably imagine, when a bunch of French horn players get together, there's a lot of concerts and performances. And so where we were, there was this concert hall and a series of people playing in small groups and doing solos. And this famous horn player played several. And one of them, he played a concerto written by a composer named Carl Maria von Faber for violin. The guy was so spectacularly talented that all existing French horn concertos and solos were not enough for him uh, and, and to sort of exercise the full breadth of his talent. And so he had painstakingly taught himself how to play a violin concerto on the French horn. Um, towards the end of the week, one evening, I was... Uh, up in my hotel room, and all my fellow students came rushing in and said, Nathaniel, you will not believe what just happened. So they went across the street from the hotel to a bar, and famous French horn player was in the bar. And they got to hang out with him and talk with him for hours. And uh, by the time that they all arrived, he had been there for some time and had already consumed a considerable amount of alcohol. Um, and continued to sort of discuss French horn stuff and the particulars of his life for the next couple hours. And they found out that uh, behind all this talent, and this guy probably is the most talented French horn player I've ever seen, uh, was a miserable, lonely, angry, hurting human being 
in the midst of a painful divorce, uh, losing his wife, losing his children. And uh, as far as they could piece together, the fundamental reason is that he was fundamentally married to the French horn and was fully aware that he was losing everything but the French horn because of it and, and just didn't want to let go. Um, he is a spectacularly successful person. Uh, he, in many ways, sort of epitomizes the American dream. Um, he's, he's excellent. He's the best. Um, he uh, fought his way to the top and won. And, uh, and everybody knows it, except in so doing, he lost everything. And the challenge for us is that uh, the American dream... Or, or whatever vision we might have of life or have received from our family or our culture or from our own hearts uh, is not always the best way to live. Uh, that there is uh, there's out there a beautiful life. Uh, it's something we probably all desire. In this passage, James wants to give us a snapshot of, of what he thinks real health looks like. James is always is um, so the difficulty with James is it seems like a rule book because it's so practical. He talks in very specific terms about about your tongue and the way you treat other people. But if you take a really close look, you realize there's little to no actual practical advice in James. It's not a rule book. It functions a lot more like a checkup, where you kind of go into the doctor and they sort of let you know how you're doing. Because uh, James knows that if we believe the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that it's going to affect and impact our lives in certain ways. And it'll actually be easy to tell, examining your life, to what extent you're living out of the gospel. And uh, that's what the whole book does for us. In this particular passage, he's focusing on what he calls wisdom. Uh, exemplified in life. Um, Paul calls it the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, if you have the Spirit, the gospel of Jesus in your heart, it'll bear fruit, it'll look like wisdom, and uh, I'm calling it the beautiful life. Uh, And was actually delighted to find in discovering this passage, um, in the first verse there, in 13, it says, "...who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct?" Let him show his works. The word there for good is actually the Greek word for beautiful, for lovely. By his lovely life, let it be seen. So we want to take a look at today um, at what a beautiful life looks like. Do it in, in, uh, in three ways. First, we'll take a look at the ugly life. And then we'll take a look at the beautiful life. And then we'll ask the question, well, how do you get the beautiful life? We just... Um, Skim through the passage, you know, James loves adjectives. And uh, here's the list that I came up with that he uses to describe um, the non-beautiful life, sort of the ugly life. Um, It's bitter. Uh, It's jealous, with bitter jealousy. It's selfish. It's ambitious in a selfish kind of a way. It's boasting. It's false. It's earthly, unspiritual, 
demonic, disordered, and leads to every vile practice. Um, and many of the things described outwardly look great and, and feel great in our culture. I already used the word excellence. And uh, this is not really a sermon against excellence, per se. But this, if you pursue excellence in a certain way, you begin asking yourself, well, how do I know that I'm excellent? And perhaps the best way to know that you're excellent is really just to know that I'm more excellent than you are. Uh, so it becomes excellence based off of comparisons and climbing to the top. It's, in that sense, bitterly jealous, selfishly ambitious. It's, it's a climb to the top that involves climbing over other people. Um, it's an excellence that looks successful, but sucks the life out of the people around you and out of yourself. That's why this famous French horn player can be at, at the peak of his game, the top of excellence, and yet the people closest to him have had the life sucked out of him that I have never met his wife and don't know what was going on, but something was taking place where she wanted to do anything to get away from him. That, that, um, sometimes it's, it's obvious to all, sometimes it's very subtle, but at the end of the day, the effect is to sort of drain the life out of the people around you. And ultimately, out of yourself. Um, the cost for this kind of dream and success is extremely high. The funny thing, when I was thinking back about being there at the International Horn Symposium in Beijing, is that this guy was fabulously good, but, and this may make more sense to the musicians among you, his tone wasn't actually that great. In other words, he was technically accurate, but it wasn't rich and warm. It didn't have the beauty and depth that can come out uh, of music. I'm sure there's, um, there's bitterly jealous ways to also develop beautiful playing, but it, it made sense to me in a certain way that in his climb to the top, and his achievement of success, he'd actually missed not only the beauty of life, but the beauty of music itself. It kind of became something to be technically achieved. The passage talks in verse 14 about boasting. And this is what I thought was one of the most interesting things about the passage. It says, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, to boast is, is to be false. Which at first doesn't make sense because boasting is sort of the art of telling people things about yourself that are true. Did you know I can play the Carl Maria von Faber violin concerto on the French horn? It's true. But yet, in the larger picture, what James is saying is to do that is actually untrue. It shows that you're you're unaware or disconnected from, from the larger story. The story that we've sort of been living and telling out in the service this morning. We come in with a call to worship. The God, It's God who initiated and invited us to himself. We're welcome here. There's, there's a confession of sin, and we sort of come to this recognition that we are all broken people. 
and that our status in front of him is based before the Lord is based on his forgiveness of us and his welcoming us in, forgiving our sins. It's that, that sort of story grounds you in a deep and profound identity that in which sort of boasting doesn't really make sense anymore. It's just not, it's not true. That's not who I am. I'm, I'm not the guy who can play the violin concerto on the horn. I'm the guy who's welcome in the sanctuary where I shouldn't have been welcome. If we turn and take a look at the adjectives for the beautiful life, Here's the list I came up with. Meekness of wisdom. I'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's, it's wisdom expressed in meekness. It comes down from above. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. Full of good fruits, impartial and sincere. With both lists, there's a little bit of emotion. With the the sort of the ugly list, it comes from the earth, it's unspiritual, it comes from the demonic, that's where it comes from. It looks like bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boasting, and what it leads to is disorder and every vile practice. Or in the beautiful list, It comes down from above. It leads to the sort of wisdom that's meek, pure, peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. And the result is that it's full of mercy, full of good fruits, impartial, and sincere. My biggest struggle in preparing the sermon was to know how even to describe that stuff, and I don't know how. Other than just to share, when I read that list, it feels peaceful. Doesn't that just feel like a peaceful list? It's free, it's grounded, it's restful. It's a sort of list that they um, may not always be prized in the, in the world. I'm not sure how many leadership classes talk about the importance of meekness, which actually is a word we don't use very often. It's hard to understand. I've heard it described as power under control. I think it's what... Um, what Paul calls elsewhere a peaceful and ordinary life. He writes to the Thessalonians, what I'm desiring for you is that you would live a peaceful, ordinary life, but in such a way that it's life-giving rather than life-sucking. Think perhaps about the people that have influenced you the most in your life. The people to whom you felt connected and encouraged and challenged through whom you've grown. How many of those people are famous? How many of those people it's not that it's not about excellence, but 
But I'm guessing that that's not what first comes to mind. That they were peaceful. They were emotionally present. They were there for you. They were able to take you in. At the same um, horn symposium, my roommate, I found out when I arrived there, was not going to be one of my fellow classmates, which was stressful to me, until I found out that he was the first assistant horn player in the Los Angeles Philharmonic. (laughs) What a cool dude. He didn't bring his French horn to Beijing. And I asked him about it, and he said, look, I blow through a pipe for a living. I live with this thing from August to May, and I need a break every now and then. And having had, just had the experience that I had with the famous orange player, I asked him, don't you kind of atrophy and lose it? And he's like, yes, you would not believe he said, I take every June off. He said, we, the L.A. Phil finishes up its season at the end of May. I don't touch my horn for a month. I bring it back out in July, and I've got a month to get ready before we start doing the L.A. Pops in the Hollywood Bowl, and it takes me about a month to get back into shape. But I, I just need the rest. He said, I usually spend the month of June. I just got to take a break from the horn. And this is not a guy who's not excellent. You don't get to be the first assistant in the L.A. Phil without being really good. You know, some orchestras have tenure. L.A. is not one of them. They re-audition the whole orchestra every year. But he still just kind of had this piece about him. He actually said, you know, some of my friends tease me. You know, the orchestra job is like the cushy job. I just kind of show up and I play. But he's like, you know, it fits me. I love playing, I practice a lot, I show up, I, I do the symphonies, I get paid, and, and I go home. And then I get to take June off. It's great. I don't know if he was a believer, but he was great to be around. It was life-giving, life-affirming. I felt less intimidated and more free just kind of ask him questions to be around him. It's a life-giving way to live. And just as boasting as the ugly life is untrue, it's true to the same gospel. It's a right understanding of the story in which we live, the broken and loved people that we are, and the security that we have within that story. That the Savior himself has come running across time and space, and sacrificed himself for us, freely, not sort of like, oh, I can't believe you made me do that, but because he wanted to. On the list is um, peaceable, gentle, also open to reason. It's the sort of person who's so secure in who they are, in their identity, in Christ, that you can come to them and say, I'm not sure that you did that well, or let me reason this through with you. I'm not sure that you have this straight. The sort of person who's free to just say, okay, tell me about that. Sort of 
instead of being jealously afraid of criticism or the fall from the top, the fall, look, the fall already happened about 20 minutes ago in the service, in the confession. We kind of, we got that part over. It's not a surprise in the gospel that folks would come to you and tell you you're wrong. You're open to reason. And as a result of that, knowing yourself, you're able to share mercy and good fruits and sincerity, real sincerity with other people. Another phrase or thought that came to my mind in thinking about these words is non-anxious presence. I got that from Professor Zink. Some of you may remember he was here a couple years ago doing the marriage conference. It was a concept he shared in class one day that immediately connected with me. talked about the importance of being a non-anxious presence and how many studies there are in the counseling world of the amazing effect that a non-anxious presence can have on other people, coupled with a sort of detrimental, culture-crushing, community-destroying effect that an anxious presence can have. And uh, I've always wanted to be that, to be able to be the non-anxious presence. And the more I think about it, the more I discover just how hard it really is. It's that those, those life-giving people that have influenced me were, in most cases, a non-anxious presence. They were also, in most cases, old people. Which brings me to my third point. How do you get the beautiful life? And here's my very short answer. You don't. I'm sorry, you just, you don't. There's, there's nothing in the passage to do. That's not what this passage is about. So I said in the beginning, it's not a rule list or an instruction list. It's just kind of a, a checkup. And my heart and the gospel in believing this story, in believing the depths in which I've been loved and the, the, the brokenness that I have, How's that looking in the, in the way that I'm living it out? For me, there's a number of weak points. I imagine you may feel the same way. But it's not, it's not something you do. It's not something you go get. In fact, it says in verse 15, it comes down from above. And so like everything else in the Christian life, we come to a point where we recognize that we're in need of receiving, of receiving something to come down from above and here's the good news is that it will and it is that this this is what jesus does in people and so as much as there's anything to be done here it's to let him have his way with you that most of the folks that i know that most exemplify the beautiful life the non-anxious presence are older and they've had difficult lives And the Lord has worked through those lives. And by the way, don't you ever say to someone in the midst of something difficult, this is something good from the Lord. Shut up. <laughs> Jesus wept. Okay, bad stuff does not come down from heaven. 
But in the midst of the broken world, that doesn't mean he's not able to use those things, but those are different concepts. But he will use those things in your life to make you a beautiful, peaceful, life-giving, non-anxious presence. I defy you to read Genesis and come to the conclusion that that is not exactly what happened to Abraham and Jacob and Judah. All the, sort of the, the big names start out as liars or cheats or guys who threw their brothers in a pit and sold them into slavery and in their lives as the sort of gracious, quiet, humble people that you, that you just sort of tear up just to read about. James says all this stuff is a reflection of understanding and knowledge. And I think what he means is that you know your story. You know the Lord. You know your value. You know your weaknesses. And not in sort of a general sort of like, well, I'm not really living out of the gospel kind of a way. That's not enough. You know, I'm not living out of the gospel in the way that I, I blank in, in blank circumstances. And you know how you've been treated by Christ. It profoundly impacted all the patriarchs. It profoundly impacted all the disciples. Look, this guy writing to us is Jesus' brother who began not believing in him and ended calling him Lord because he'd been so profoundly impacted by the way he had been treated by Jesus. And that's, that is the work that he's doing in you. That's the knowledge and the wisdom that you are that he's bringing you to. Um, just to make one quick thing I could share, because I have to give you something practical. Um, if you're really looking for a summer read, uh, I, might recognize, I might recommend this book by one of my professors. It's called Delighting in the Law of the Lord, God's Alternative to legalism and moralism. Which might seem like a little bit of an oxymoron. We're going to delight in the law as an alternative to legalism and moralism. Uh, you're just going to have to read the book to understand it. It's a book about how beautiful Jesus really is. And all those guidelines in the Bible express that, not in a sort of selfish ambition battle to the top. I'm going to get this right kind of a way, but in like a, wow, he's so beautiful. Wouldn't it be great to be like that? Here's my recommendation for your summer read. I'll close with this story, actually from this professor, partly mentioned in this book. His father-in-law was a believer who was a farmer in the Central Valley of California. You would not recognize his name. He's just a farmer. Um, he uh, read in the Old Testament about offering first fruits and uh, showing respect for the king. And so he sent a box of fresh California fruit to the White House every single inauguration, whether he voted for the president or not just because he wanted to communicate 
respect and care and thankfulness for the service of the man in that office. He uh, read about gleaning in the Old Testament and uh, intentionally did not harvest all of the fruit in his fields and contacted local food shelters and invited them to come collect the rest of the food and share it with the community. Um, It's not a rich man, but was once audited by the IRS for having reported too much charitable giving. So the IRS came and examined his records, uh, returned to their offices, and sent him a letter saying that his records were fully in order and thanking him for his service to the nation and having given away as much as he did and gently reminding him that he couldn't claim as much as he was actually giving away. I think most important and most telling, though, so, you know, you can't, the whole California fruit farming industry really exists on the shoulders of migrant workers. And um, one summer, one of his former migrant workers knocked on his front door and said this. Every summer, I would come up from Mexico and I would make a beeline for your farm. You treated us so much better than the other farmers. You did not pay the minimum wage or the going rate. You paid us far more. You often ate lunch with us. You brought us treats at break time. On very hot days, you would come by with ice cream or ice cold drinks. You asked about our families. Working for you changed my whole life and the way I have raised my own sons. I have tried to raise them to be like you. I am sorry I did not come back to thank you before now. What I hope that I've set before you is um, it's not a legalistic way to kind of impress migrant workers or care for people, but just the life of the gospel and the way we've been treated and the way it can share life with other people. Let's pray.